This morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 23. I'll be reading verses 35 to 43. Today, we continue our seven-part sermon series entitled The Seven Last Words. This morning, we come to the second statement that Jesus spoke from the cross. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 23. Let's begin at verse 35. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserves. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom and Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. As Jesus hung on the tree, everybody hurled insults at him. The Pharisees, the crowd, The soldiers, even the criminals that were crucified on his right and on his left, everybody had something negative to say to Jesus. Scripture says that they mocked him. That ancient word that's translated mock means to turn up one's nose, to sneer. They ridiculed Jesus, saying things like, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, let him come down off the cross. For if he comes down off the cross, then we will believe. Let God rescue him if he wants him. After all, he said, I am the son of God. If you are the Christ, save yourself. Nobody had anything positive to say. Everybody had something negative to say. I find that very disturbing and disheartening. Not one person on that hill called Calvary stood up and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not one person stood to say, I was blind, but this man made me to see. Not one person said, I was a cripple, but this man touched me and now I can walk. Not one individual said, I was deaf, but he unstopped my deaf ears. Not one testimony, not one person to say, my life was a wreck, but he saved me. Nobody said anything like that. In fact, it is Matthew and Mark who say that at the beginning of that six-hour window of time, that even both criminals hurled insults at Jesus. I think this speaks to the mob mentality of the moment. 
Everybody was swept up into criticism. If you stop and think about it, it's really ridiculous for those who are being crucified to waste their breath criticizing Christ. These guys are going to die of suffocation and they waste their energy, their fleeting strength to hurl insults at Jesus. It is Luke who says that at some point, the light of salvation dawns in the mind and eye of one particular criminal. Luke is the only one to record this infamous conversation between Jesus and the criminal on the cross. And I, for one, am delighted that Dr. Luke records this Calvary conversion. I think what Luke is giving us is a salvific selfie. I call it that because it's a snapshot of salvation and it is a selfie because you're included in it. And this morning I want to try to paint the picture so that you see yourself in this salvific selfie. At front and center, we have Jesus. He's always the central figure of salvation history. He is hanging on a cross. He is the sole sufficient savior of the universe. He is flanked by two criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. One criminal rejects Jesus. He's reviled by Jesus. The other criminal receives Jesus and apparently he repents of his sin. My friends, those are the only two options for all of humanity. Either You can reject him or you can receive him, but you cannot ignore him. Nobody can ignore Jesus. Nobody who's ever lived can ever ignore Jesus. You've got to do something with this one named Jesus of Nazareth, who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Either you will receive him as King, you'll reject him, but you cannot ignore him. And I think that Luke, who's a masterful storyteller, wants us to identify with one of these criminals. And ideally, as an evangelist at heart, Luke wants us to identify with the criminal who received Jesus and repented of sin. But if you stop and think about it, Luke tells us very little about this criminal. We don't know his age. We don't know his crime. We don't even know his name. This reprobate is anonymous. And yet, Luke is telling us that not everybody will receive Jesus, but everybody who does receive Jesus will be received by Jesus. And not everyone will reject Jesus, but every person who rejects Jesus will be rejected by Jesus. So you can receive him, you can reject him, but you cannot ignore him. And Luke wants us to identify. And he's asking the question, where are you in this salvific selfie? Where are you at Calvary? If you focus in on this criminal who accepts Jesus and repents, you realize that this man probably did no good leading up to his conversion. And the truth of the matter is, he didn't do any good after his conversion either because I think he closed his eyes and went straight from the cross to paradise. So you can't say that this man was saved because of his merit. 
You can't say that this man was saved because of his good works. You have to conclude that this man was saved only because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And I want to submit to you that that's the way anybody is ever saved. None of us are saved by our merits. None of us are saved by good deeds or good works. The only way that any of us are saved is because God has sovereignly snatched sinners. That's a good definition of salvation. God has sovereignly snatched sinners. And it's by grace that you and I are saved. For like the thief on the cross, we cannot lift a hand or a foot unto our own salvation. We are dead in our sin. We are guilty as charged. We are criminals before God. And Luke records a glorious conversation. There are four components to this man's conversion that I think have to be in every person's conversion. First, this criminal on the cross had a healthy, holy fear of God. The one criminal said, hey, aren't you the Christ? Why don't you save yourself and while you're at it, save us too. Let's just show them exactly who you are. The other criminal rebuked his buddy. He said, don't you fear God? We're under the same sentence. In other words, what he's saying is, who do you think you are to reprimand the rabbi? Who do you think you are to tell that rabbi what to do? We are lawbreakers. And we are here Because this is what an earthly judge has delivered our verdict to be. And if that's how an earthly judge is going to respond to us, how do you think God is going to respond to us? Because he is the heavenly judge. There is a healthy, holy fear of God. I think that all faith finds its roots in a healthy, holy fear of God. The writer of the Proverbs said, it's the fear of God that's the beginning of all wisdom. Whether you know it or not, all of us will appear before God after we die. Everybody will. Whether you believe in him or not, whether you've lived for him or not, it's really a mute point because everybody will appear before God and give a defense of things done and said in the body while on earth. All of us will appear before God. And if that doesn't put just a little bit of holy fear inside of all of us, then we probably don't have a lot of healthy faith. Because there is something about that, that we, as frail and fragile as we are, we're going to stand before the holy, infinite, majestic God when we begin to fathom how great God is in all of his glory and all of his splendor. We've got to respond in a similar way as this criminal and as the prophet Isaiah. Woe is me. I am undone. I'm a sinner. I'm as good as dead. My goose is cooked. I am completely messed up. I am undone. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. All of us have to have a healthy, holy fear of God. I think that when that happens, that's, that's the beginning point of conversion. I think that that's when the light of conversion illuminates the eye and stirs the heart. That's what's happening to this criminal on the cross. Don't you fear God, he says, for we are under the same sentence. But not only is there a healthy, holy fear of God, but also there's a recognition of sin. He says to his partner in crime, we are being punished justly. 
We are getting what our deeds deserve. Nobody is being unfair with us. In fact, the world is being very fair with us. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. It was John MacArthur who said that sin is never clearer than when you're in the presence of righteousness. We can compare our criminal activity to the other criminals that go to church with us. And we begin to compare our lives to the lives of the people seated around us. We think to ourselves, ah, not that bad. And then we can compare the criminal sinful activity of our life to the people who are outside the stained glass windows that never darken the door of the church in our culture, in our society. And we give ourselves a false sense of security that, yeah, I'm really okay now because I'm not nearly as bad as him or her. And oh, my friends, when we compare ourselves with the other criminals that are around us, we can think we're not that bad. But when we compare our criminal activity, our sinful selfishness to the holy innocence of Christ, our sin becomes overwhelming. Sin is never clearer than when you are in the presence of righteousness. That's what the criminal on the cross is experiencing. He is dangling there and he looks over and there is purity and there is innocence. And there is righteousness. It's right there for him to see. And he thinks to himself, listen, I am the opposite of that. I'm getting what my sins deserve. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. If you read throughout the Passion narrative, it becomes abundantly clear that everybody who's anybody is saying that Jesus is innocent. Pontius Pilate, he says, I find no basis of a charge against this man. And so he washes his hands of it. Herod said, I find no reason for this man to be killed and put to death. The criminal on the cross said, this man has done nothing wrong. He indicts all of Israel with that one statement. Yet all the Pharisees and all the religious rulers and all the scribes and all the elders, they would not have it any other way. Jesus had to be crucified. And yet you realize that it required the death of the innocent God-man to wipe away your sin. And when that statement begins to sink in, it it reveals the severity of our disobedience. Our sin is a violent attack against God. It is holy war against the divine creator of the universe where we say in arrogance and selfishness that we want to be our own God and do our own thing. And so we are disobedient to the core. We are born, stillborn, spiritually speaking, before God. We are sinful. He is innocent. And the only way for us to be declared innocent is for him to take our guilt upon himself. It required the death of the God-man. If God could have used another means to accomplish your salvation, if somehow he could have accomplished our salvation with something less than the death of Jesus, he would have done it. But nothing, nothing can wipe away your sin except the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what this criminal is crying. That's what he's asking for. He's saying, listen, we're getting what our sins deserve. But this man, he's innocent. And when you begin to recognize your own personal sin, you begin to realize the severity of your sin and that it required the death of the God-man to wipe it away. Oh, my friend, salvation is right over the horizon. You begin to realize that the only way for Jesus to save sinners was for him not to spare his own life. If he were to spare his own life, we would be dead in our sins still. But he died in our place. That sweet swap of salvation. We give him our sin. He gives us his salvation. We give him all of our guilt. He gives us his innocence. Oh, my friends, we get the good end of the stick, don't you think? I mean, we get the glorious part because we get the innocence of Christ. The righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ is robed around us. Oh, that criminal on the cross had a healthy, holy fear of God, and he also began to recognize his own sin. There's a third component of this conversion. He called on the name of Jesus. He said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. I don't know if this man ever met Jesus before today. You're given no indication that this anonymous reprobate had ever bumped into Jesus. Maybe he just knows his name because what everybody's been saying about him. And yet he calls him by name, Jesus. He speaks the name that blind Bartimaeus spoke. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He speaks the name that the tax collector spoke when he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He speaks the name that created everything seen and unseen. He speaks the name that flung the stars in the sky and turned the sun on in the in the, in the sky. He speaks the name that taught the ocean to only come so far. He speaks the name that taught the birds how to fly and the fish how to swim. He speaks the name that preserved Noah and the family in the worldwide flood. He speaks the name that rescued the Israelites from Egyptian captivity and enabled them to cross the Red Sea on dry land. He speaks the name that took Joseph out of the pit and placed him in the palace. He speaks the name that uh, danced with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He speaks the name that shut up the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den. He speaks the name that raised the widow's son in Zarephath. He speaks the name that showed up on Mount Carmel and defeated 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. He speaks the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He speaks the name, the only name that's given under heaven to men by which we must be saved. He said, Jesus, remember me. It's the only name that saves. It's the only name that he could call on to receive salvation. Because Jesus is not just a way, he's the way. He's not just a truth, he's eternal truth. He's not just a life, he's everlasting life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man gives to the Father except through me. Somehow this criminal has salvation on the horizon. 
he has a healthy, holy fear of God. He recognizes his sin. He calls on the name Jesus. There's a fourth component of his conversion. It's got to be present in his life. It's got to be present in your life. Fourth and finally, he just, he just asked for forgiveness. Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He just asked. Anybody needs salvation? All you got to do is ask. He'll give it freely. He is very liberal with his salvation. He'll give it to anyone who asks. He simply asks, Jesus, remember me. That word remember means to pardon. It means to remove guilt. It means to save. It means to bless. Jesus, remember me. If you stop and consider it just for a moment, you realize that nobody's going to remember this guy. The Roman soldier who's executing him, he won't remember him. He won't remember him five minutes after that guy's dead. The crowd that day that gathered, they won't remember this criminal on the cross. If they remember anybody, they'll remember the one who is front and center, the one dangling in between two thieves, Jesus the Christ. But they're not going to remember this conversation that a criminal has with Christ. Think about this guy's friends. If he has any friends, they won't remember him because to remember him is to indict them. They're not going to remember him. His own family members probably would hope to forget him because he caused them so much pain and agony. Now, this guy may have a mama and mamas always remember their darling children. But other than that, I don't think anybody else is going to remember him. Jesus, will you remember me? Jesus, will you not just have a cognitive reflection of me, but will you pardon me? Will you remove my guilt? Will you save me? Will you bless me? Remember me when you enter your kingdom. Apparently, this criminal had gone to Sunday school. There are a lot of criminals in Sunday school, by the way. (laughs) Apparently, this criminal had gone to Sunday school from time to time because he had a workable cultural theology. The rabbis in those days said that when Messiah comes, he will usher in his kingdom. And when he ushers in his kingdom, it will be at the eschaton. It will be on that last day, that glorious day, when you look over the horizon and here comes Messiah. And when Messiah comes, he will come in force. He will come in power. He will right all the wrongs. When Messiah comes, he will come at the eschaton at the very last day. And this criminal who had just enough religion said, Jesus, remember me. When you come at the eschaton, when you come into your kingdom, I just want to be part of the holy entourage. I I just want to be there. I just kind of want to, you know, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. I just kind of want to be there. I just want to hold the robe. I just want to be there. I just want to kind of assist or help. But anyway, I just want to be there instead of being anywhere else. Just remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's asking to be part of the holy entourage that will take place on that great last day, the eschaton. And furthermore, this criminal, he's banking on the fact that none of the three of them are going to survive this thing. All of them are going to die on crosses. But he's also assuming that possibly there is hope of resurrection because maybe this innocent one will be raised from the dead. Because he will come back at eschaton. 
And so I want to be with him. I want to be with the one that gets up out of the grave. So Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He is affirming not only the innocence of Christ, he is affirming the deity of Christ. He is affirming the resurrected power of Christ. He's saying, Lord, when you come back, let me be counted among the masses. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's asking for forgiveness. Now, let me ask you this. How does Jesus respond to a person who has healthy, holy fear, a person who has recognition of own personal sin, someone who calls on the name of Jesus and simply asks for forgiveness? How does Jesus respond? Well, I'll tell you, the request of the criminal arrested the attention of Jesus. He looked at him and said, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. What a glorious statement. Jesus doesn't say a whole lot of words from the cross, but the words he does say, boy, they pack a punch. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, not tomorrow, not on the third day, not 50 days from now, not at the eschaton, but today. He's telling this criminal, it is more better than you could ever imagine. It's not that you're going to be in my kingdom at the eschaton. I'll put you in the kingdom today. Today, you'll be with me. Today, in this, today, you'll be with me. Because whenever a person calls on the name of the Lord, the response is immediate. There is no soul sleep. There's no holding pattern. There's no place where you could go just to hope and pray that you may get out of purgatory and get into paradise? No, Jesus said today. Today. Because Jesus knew that in that moment, he was taking that man's sins too. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. By that statement, Jesus is saying something about the purpose of salvation. If I were to ask you, why are you saved, Christian? You may answer in a trite fashion. You may say, well, I'm, I'm saved to serve. I've been blessed to be a blessing. I get that. I agree with that. I understand that. But let me ask you this. Who did the criminal save and who did he serve? The criminal was saved, but he didn't serve anybody. The case could be made, well, he's serving us. His story is told for eons. Yes, I get that, but... If we're truly saved to serve, and that's the purpose of why we're saved, then who did the criminal serve? Now, I think there's something even more fundamental to salvation. For the purpose of salvation is so that you and I can commune with Christ and so we can have fellowship with the Lord. What does he say to him? Today, you will be with me. You'll be with me. One of the great promises of salvation is that when you are saved, you have the powerful privilege of being able to live in the presence of Christ both now and forevermore. Now that ought to get an amen. You have the powerful privilege of being able to live in the presence of Christ both now and forevermore. Today, you will be with me. I don't know everything that salvation is, but this much I do know, I was saved and that means that I live in the presence of Christ both now and forevermore. So you will be with me, Jesus says. Because fundamental to salvation is that God gets with God's people. 
And we dwell with him both now and forevermore. That's why we say that salvation, eternal life, does not begin at death. Eternal life begins at the moment of life. When you go from no faith to faith. When you go from death unto life. That's the moment that eternal life begins. And so this criminal was given this promise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now what is that? Well, I'll just be real simple this morning. Paradise is heaven. Now, as I look at this, as I research this, it is obvious that Christians throughout the ages do not agree about what happened here and what this means. If you do a whole lot of digging into this, you'll find that people who have conversations about different sides of hell and what paradise is and different levels of heaven and paradise could be the bosom of Abraham. It could be this, it could be that. Listen, I just want to tell you that paradise is heaven. And I can say that with some confidence because this is only the third time in the entire New Testament that this word for paradise is used. The other two times, it's in a conversation about heaven. The first one is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, where the apostle Paul says that I was caught up to the third heaven. He regards and, 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 and calls that third heaven paradise. It's a place where God dwells. The other instance is in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. That's the first letter of the seven churches that Jesus wrote. And the first one goes to the church at Ephesus where Jesus says, you have forsaken your first love. Repent. Remember the things you used to do. Do the things you did at first. And then you'll be an overcomer. And you will be given the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In Revelation chapter 22, it speaks of this tree of life as being on both sides of the river of life. And the river of life flows, according to Revelation 22, directly from the very throne of God. That is heaven. That's the place where God dwells. Paradise is heaven. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Many have taught and believed throughout the ages that when Jesus died, he went to hell. For those few days. Maybe. But I'm not really convinced. What I'm more convinced of is this. I don't know if Jesus went to hell when he died. But I know that hell came upon Jesus at Calvary. And Jesus endured my hell and your hell. He endured the hell for this criminal. He endured an eternal eternity's worth of condemnation for you and for me. How is this possible? Only God can do it. For God is creator of time and space. And only the creator of time and space can act outside of time and space. And he can stuff and squeeze and, and crunch an eternity's worth of condemnation into a time frame of six hours in a space of the third decade of the first century located on a hill outside Jerusalem. And on that faithful Friday for those six hours, an eternity's worth of condemnation was meted and poured and absorbed upon Jesus so that Jesus will ultimately declare, it is finished. Now, we're not there yet because that's not the word for today. Today's word is, today you'll be with me in paradise. But if you want to come back every Sunday from now for the next several, then you can hear the rest of the story. But regardless, Jesus, with great confidence, says to the criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today 
you will be with me in heaven. What a glorious conversion. Now, I don't know about you, but this guy's story is my story. I know what it is to be a thief. I know what it is to be a robber. And so do you. Now, you may bow up a little bit and say, hey, dude, you don't even know me. Like today's the first day we've ever laid eyes on each other. How can you call me a thief? Oh, my friend, you're a thief of the worst kind. Because you're a cosmic thief. God has given you life, talents, gifts, and abilities. And you've robbed God. Because you've used your life, your talents, your gifts, and your abilities for your own selfish gain instead of the good and glory of God. That makes you a thief, my friend. I think that Dr. Luke understood this, and that's why he paints this portrait of salvific history. He gives us a a salvific selfie. He wants us to see ourselves in this. And either, my friends, you can reject Jesus, but Luke, that evangelist at heart, he wants you to receive Jesus. And what does it look like to be converted? What does it look like to receive Christ? It looks like that you have a healthy, holy fear of God. That you have a recognition of personal sin. That you call on the name Jesus. And you ask him to forgive you. And he does. And he says to you what he said to the thief. Today, you'll be with me wherever I am in paradise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. The hymn writer is exactly right. There is a fountain and it's filled with blood and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all of their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. Friends, that's my story. That's the story of the criminal in Luke chapter 23. That could be your story as well. Regardless of how old you are or how young you are, let me ask you this morning, have you received Jesus through repentance? Have you come to him with a holy fear? Have you acknowledged your sin before Christ, the innocent one? Have you called on Jesus to save you because you know you can't save yourself and nobody else can save you and you can't be saved on the coattails of your mom or dad and you just want to come to him and ask for forgiveness, my friend. If that's you, then you go from no faith to faith today. And maybe you're here. Maybe you've been at Shaco all weekend long. But today, maybe you just need to come and make public what God's been doing so powerfully and privately in your life. I say this to anyone who will listen so that we can come to Christ on Christ's terms and he can save us. It is a sovereign snatching of sinners by the grace of God. Today, Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. And Father, we pray that if there is an anonymous reprobate in the house, that you will help us to be converted today by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If there's somebody here and they are a believer, but Lord, they are heavy hearted because of a 
friend or family member who is lost. Oh, Father, I pray that they'll come to this altar and pray for them today. Maybe there's somebody here who needs to join this faith family. Whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you will move and we will respond. In Jesus' name, amen.